You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to our continuing series on the book of Exodus. We're up at episode 5 now, Exodus series episode 5. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, fun fact for today. I'm home alone, which is for a lot of reasons, not a good idea. But I'm also with my dogs and my cat. So this could get interesting. We'll see where this goes, but um, hope you're not allergic. Anyway, hey, listen, before we begin, just a quick word that the revised edition of Genesis for Normal People is out there just waiting for you. And this is a guide to the book of Genesis that breaks down big themes of the book and what biblical scholarship has contributed to our understanding of Genesis. And it's great for both personal reading and group study. It even comes with a study guide. And you can check out some information about the book if you go to my website, peteends.com. And of course, it's available at Amazon on both Kindle and paperback. So, so much for that. Okay, listen, today we're covering the law codes in Exodus And this takes us from Exodus chapter 20 through 24, and this section includes the famous Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and also something called the Book of the Covenant in chapters 22 to 24, which is what is referred to in Exodus 24-7. It's called the Book of the Covenant. That's where we get this idea from. We're not just making it up. That's the basic breakdown, but technically speaking, chapter 20, in addition to the Ten Commandments, also contains a word about the proper altar to sacrifice on. And the book of the covenant that I just mentioned, it seems to end in the middle of chapter 23, specifically at verse 29. And the rest of chapter 23 and chapter 24 seem to, I don't know, tidy up some things before we begin the tabernacle section, which is in chapter 25 and continues more or less to the end of the book. So that sounds like a good break right before the end of, right before the beginning rather of the tabernacle section. And we're going to take a quick look at all these things anyway, so. Okay, so first, let's talk about some general things about the idea of law before we get into the laws themselves. First, if you don't like reading laws, you are in big trouble, because from here on out through the Pentateuch, that's what we've got. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, although, having said that, these books are more than just lists of laws, but they're laws woven into a narrative framework. In fact, the narrative is primary. It gives shape to these five books. Think about it. We're moving from the creation story in Genesis all the way to the Israelites encamped on the brink of the promised land. A story is being told, but integral 
to that story is law. Now, we have a number of other law codes from the ancient world, and they do not appear woven into a long narrative, but they appear in lists. And in its earliest stages, Israelite laws might have also been bare-bones lists. We don't know that for sure. But if that's true, the writers of the Pentateuch make that law part of a story, a story of God's deliverance of God's people. See, narrative and law are connected. Specifically, they're connected in this way. Law is a response to deliverance. And this is very important for understanding the Old Testament as a whole. And we're going to come back to this idea in a few minutes when we look at the Ten Commandments uh, specifically. Right, so that's one thing. Second, I just mentioned other law codes of the ancient world surrounding Israel, typically referred to as the ancient Near Eastern world, which is confusingly called today the Middle East, but anyway, I don't make up maps. Okay, law codes from these other cultures have been known to us today for over eh, about two centuries. So thank you, archaeology. And they date from as early as what's called the Sumerian period, that's like the late 3rd millennium BCE, all the way to the Babylonian period, which is as late as about the 7th century BCE. And most famous, and maybe you've seen this somewhere, either in your own studies or the History Channel or whatever, the most famous of these ancient law codes outside of the Bible is the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a Babylonian king. He lived in the 18th century BCE, and this law code contains about 300 laws, some of which are strikingly similar to laws we find in Exodus, and more on that in a few minutes. The bottom line, Israelites weren't the only ones to receive commands from their God, and they weren't the first either. And the similarities between these law codes and the biblical codes suggest that the laws we see in Exodus are not just like timeless abstractions, but like everything else in the Bible, they have a context. They have a historical time and place where they fit. We'll get into all that stuff. Third, let's get straight here on the meaning of the word Torah, which is a Hebrew word meaning not just laws or something like that, but more generally instruction or direction. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because not all of the Pentateuch which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not all of the Pentateuch is legal material, but all of it is Torah. See, in other words, the narratives, the stories, are also there to provide some instruction, some direction. And not by turning them into laws, like lessons to live by or something like that, but by gleaning wisdom from them and maybe even a glimpse of God from these stories. Christians have tended to have a hang-up, right, with this part of the Bible, in part because it smacks of legalism, which is a view of the Old Testament shaped by centuries of misunderstanding some things that we read in the New Testament, especially with Paul, where Paul seems to be anti-law, which he isn't. Oh boy, we're not going to get into all that here. I just want to, to note that the history of Judaism has taken a very, let's say, non-legalistic approach to the laws in the Torah. And again, we're going to touch on this below as well. Okay, a fourth point. 
generally these laws in Exodus cover both social and religious matters. We see that in the famous Ten Commandments, where the first four are religious in nature, right? Don't have other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, Sabbath rest, okay, those are the four. And then the next six are social, you know, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. And in the Book of the Covenant, the second part of this section we're talking about, right, in the Book of the Covenant, these two types of laws, social and religious, they're sort of woven together. All of which is to suggest that these religious and social laws were not meant to be separated, as if one is sacred and the other secular. The worship of God in ancient Israel and the treatment of others are inseparable. After all, God is just, and so God's people, especially kings, must reflect that justice to each other. It's part of what it means, I guess, to be created in God's image. A fifth point, in case you're keeping score, another way of categorizing the laws, in addition to social and religious, are two words we don't use every day, but they come in handy when you're looking at biblical law, and those two words are apodictic and casuistic. What did I just say? You can pull over if you want to. Casuistic means case laws. If such and such is the case, if such and such happens, then this is the punishment, then this is the consequence. It's if-then laws. Apodictic means straight commands. Thou shalt not. And I raise this because, well, it's just helpful to know, but also to point out that it's very hard to bring ancient case laws into today's world no matter how much we might want to be obedient to God. Last time I checked, for example, I don't have cattle that wander onto my neighbor's property and graze their vineyard. Actually, even the straight commands, the apodictic laws, they aren't the clearest things to work out. Okay, I mean, do not covet. Okay, where does admiring end and coveting begin? And this is why, and I suppose we're moving to the sixth point now, that's why these laws have been interpreted differently at different times and under different circumstances. As times change, as Judaism moved beyond the borders of Israel, some of the laws became either irrelevant or obscure, and so the law needed to be engaged creatively. This is why Judaism developed what is called a halakhic tradition. Halacha is the, the noun. Halach, the verb in Hebrew, means to walk. And so think about that. Engaging the law is like walking a path rather than simply reading a law and doing what it obviously says. It's engaging it. It's taking the time to meditate on it. It's learning from it. It's not obvious, right? There's nothing obvious about it. This halakhic tradition in Judaism is one of discussion and debate about what laws mean and how they are to be enacted in a world that these laws never really envisioned when they were first given. I'm dragging this out a little bit, but see, the lesson for Christians here is not to proof text laws in our own current moment in time in the Western world, including the Ten Commandments. Some of these ancient laws are really disturbing when read today, and they all have at least some ambiguity that makes their meaning less than certain. For example, keeping the Sabbath and honoring your parents. These are the fourth and fifth commandments. They seem clear enough until you start getting into the details. Keeping the Sabbath means not working, but what exactly constitutes work? Well, that's not spelled out. 
How exactly does one honor one's parents? Especially if the parent is maybe borderline abusive. The law doesn't provide for these contingencies, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't. In fact, we have to. This is largely the history of Judaism I'm just describing here in terms of the law. I guess the the point I'm really trying to get across here is that law and legalism are not the same thing. And even if many of us were raised to think so. Okay, two more quick points before we get into the laws themselves, and I think we're on number seven here. Not that it matters. Okay, it's interesting, number seven. It's interesting how infrequently the law of Moses plays a role in the Old Testament as a whole. You can certainly find some of the Ten Commandments implicitly or explicitly in in some places in the Old Testament, but reference to the law of Moses outside of the Pentateuch, but they're infrequent. So what? Okay, listen, you could say about it the whole podcast here, but, you know, this raises the question, at least it has raised the question in the minds of many scholars, why is it if Sinai is so central to Israel's identity, right, the place where Moses got the law from God on Mount Sinai, why is so little made of it in subsequent books? Why don't we see, for example, with a lot of regularity, as the Lord revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, or some comment like that every time somebody sins or screws up? The common answer, given in modern scholarship, is that there is no Torah during the time of the kings. To put that more clearly, there is no Torah before the Babylonian exile. Yes, Israel has laws and legal traditions, but these traditions, which by the way are often in conflict with each other, we're going to get to that too, they don't exist as a collection under the name Moses until after the time of Israel's kings, probably not until after the return from the Babylonian exile, which is uh, usually called the Persian period. Now, what I've just described is more or less taken for granted among biblical scholars, don't try this at home, and part of what we do here at the Bible for Normal People is simply to pass that on, right? We want to distill and bring biblical scholarship um, into the lives of people who don't normally look at these sorts of things but are still interested. So it also helps make, I think, a little more sense also of some of what we read not only in these laws, but in the Pentateuch as a whole, some of which we've touched on in earlier episodes. In other words, understanding the, the existence of these traditions and the compilation, the bringing together of these traditions at a much later time. It helps make sense of some of what we read in the Pentateuch itself. Okay, I will not belabor that. Eighth and final point, we need to avoid, I'm speaking to Christians here, we need to avoid the law versus grace thing between the Old and New Testaments. The law in the Old Testament is not a burden that's dumped on Israel by an angry God meant to test them to see if they're worthy. Remember that Israel was delivered from Egypt before they are given the law. To put that in Christian terms, grace always precedes law in the Old Testament. You are saved first and then given instructions about how to live in a manner consistent with that grace. You're not given law in order to be saved. You are saved. And then come the instructions for obedience. 
See, in my experience, this gets quickly and regularly muddled by Christians. And this is only one of several reasons why I think Christians insisting that the Ten Commandments be placed in public places is just off base. The commands are for those already in. They are not meant to be imposed on those who do not wish to be in. And it really baffles me why anyone who sees America as a Christian country, I don't, by the way, I didn't have to keep you guessing on that point, but you know, it baffles me why anyone who sees America as a Christian country would want to front the Ten Commandments rather than, say, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians or the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, listen, as usual, I, t- I took longer than I thought. Uh, when will I ever learn? I don't know, probably never, but that's okay. It's my podcast. All right, let's move now to the Ten Commandments, and this is in chapter 20, verses 1 to 21, or as they are also known, the Decalogue, which means literally ten words, which, by the way, is actually what the Hebrew says. In Exodus 20, verse 1, when it's introduced, it says, then God spoke all these words. It doesn't say commands. They are commands, but they're called the ten words in, in Hebrew. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com 
using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. You know, we're not going to look at each one. That's a 10-part podcast series in and of itself, but we'll do the best we can. So giving some highlights again of this section that might help orient us a little bit differently to these laws. Okay. So first, here's something annoying about the Decalogue. Not every religious tradition numbers them the same way. See, what for, I don't know why, but what for Protestants are the first two commands, where they're combined into one command in Judaism, which leaves nine, but they consider the prologue to be the first command, which isn't actually a command, but a statement. The prologue is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You know, for, for Protestants, this is what introduces the laws. It's not a law itself. It's a statement, right? It's not casuistic or apodictic. It's just a statement. But Roman Catholics and Lutherans have still another way of doing it, which we're not going to get into. I'll be going with the Protestant numbering because you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and that's probably the one that gets the most attention. And also, as I hinted earlier, these commands are not all new, nor are they all unique to Israel. It's not like the Israelites would have said, wow, shocker, you mean it's wrong to murder somebody? Who knew? Or do we think that the other nations thought killing whoever, whenever was just fine? See, what makes these commands what they are for the ancient Israelites isn't that they are new, but that these are the commands that were for establishing Israelite society as it was moving forward. They are not necessarily new or unique to Israel. Also, another point here about the Ten Commandments, the law is written on two tablets. Often it's thought that half are on one tablet and half on the other. By the way, do you hear this angry blue jay outside my window? I put a sign up, do not make noise, but they're not listening. Anyway, all right. Huh. So half on one, half on the other, five and five. And that's a very sort of neat German thing to do, but that, that's arbitrary. You know, that's sort of guesswork. We actually don't know at the end of the day why there are two tablets. But some say, you know, there, you put religious commands on one. That's the first four. And then the other six are the social commands. You put them in the other. But again, that's sort of this dichotomy, right, between sacred and secular that really doesn't work in ancient societies in general and certainly not in the old testament hey everyone my name is peter watts i'm from seattle and i'm part of the producers group here at the bible for normal people this podcast is brought to you by supporters on the patreon platform for as little as a dollar a month you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere as a thanks for your support there are lots of videos from pete and jared a discussion group and other rewards so check it out at patreon.com forward slash the bible for normal people One thing I appreciate about being part of the Patreon group is the opportunity to have real conversations about the Bible and the Bible's ancient context. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, don't worry. You can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank right now is the Producers Group, who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. So thanks to Josh Aldridge, Jonathan Lee, Christopher Zenner, Jacqueline Van Beek, Matthew Henry, Douglas Barnhart, Erica and Eric Brown, and Hannah Paxton. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. 
Now back to the podcast. Now, some have argued, and this is what I think makes some sense, at least it's worth keeping in mind. Some have argued that the two tablets are actually two identical copies of the Ten Commands. Each party gets a copy. Sort of like a contract today, right? So, one for God and one for the people. God's copy would presumably go in the Ark of the Covenant, and the people's copy would go, well, I don't think the Bible actually says anything about that, so maybe be a little cautious about this idea. But still, the argument is made on the basis of ancient Near Eastern treaties that archaeologists have dug up, specifically from the ancient Hittites. This is the second millennium BCE and the Assyrians in the first millennium BCE. And here the king and his vassals, you know, his underlings, the people he rules over or conquered, the king and his vassals, they form a pact. And this agreement is put into writing, and each party gets a copy. It's just food for thought. That's not a goofy theory, right? Especially when we notice that the Decalogue reflects these ancient treaties in another way. And that is this way, that the prologue to the Ten Commandments, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? That prologue is followed by the commands themselves. That's what we saw already in in the Ten Commandments. Now, similarly, here's why I bring it up, ancient kings, before alerting the people of their obligations to him, the laws, would remind the people of what he had done for them, like deliver them from an enemy. You know, now that that's settled, the people hear the end, their end of the bargain if they want to remain protected and safe. You, know, you won't join with other kings, you won't wage war against me, you'll be loyal to me, etc., all that kind of stuff. See, this treaty, let's say, between God and Israel works in a similar way. Here's what I did. I delivered you from Egypt. Now, here are your obligations to me. Don't have any other gods etc., etc. See, also, this prologue tells us something, it fleshes out a bit more, let's put it that way, something that I mentioned earlier that is very way huge, important about the Old Testament, and that is salvation, deliverance, comes before the commands, right? Said that already. Deliverance first, commands second. Since I have delivered you, you shall, first commandment, have no other gods before me. Uh, incidentally, just throwing this in for free to remind you, as we saw in earlier episodes, this, you shall have no other gods before me, is a classic statement of monolatry, not monotheism. Right? Monotheism is the belief that only one god actually exists. Monolatry is the acknowledgement that many gods exist, but only one is to be worshipped. The Israelites were monolatrous, not monotheistic. See, you shall have no other gods before me that presumes that other gods exist. And the Israelites are to make sure not to put any of these gods ahead of Yahweh, because Yahweh, why? Because he is the one who delivered them from Egypt. So, Likewise, the second commandment, you shall not worship me the same way other nations worship their gods, by means of idols, representations of the gods in wood or stone or clay. I delivered you right? And now you will worship me as I want to be worshipped, which is not through idols. That's a pretty radical statement, by the way, folks, in the ancient world. And in case they need more motivation, we read in the second commandment that they will be blessed for thousands of generations for obeying that command, but punished 
for three or four generations if they don't. Which is pretty serious stuff. Okay, another thing worth noting about the Decalogue in Exodus 21 is that it differs from the Decalogue we see in Deuteronomy 5, 5 to 21. Now, based on earlier episodes, maybe you already know where this is going, but scholars see this difference in the two forms of the Ten Commandments as evidence of, well, you guessed it, multiple traditions. The commands are essentially the same, but the explanations for a few of the commands are different. The biggest difference we see is in the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath. In Exodus, the reason given for the whole community, including animals, to rest on the seventh day is that God rested on the seventh day when God created the cosmos in Genesis 1. In Deuteronomy, the reason for rest is the memory of they themselves having been slaves in Egypt. So you don't make your male and female slaves work. See, the focus is more humanitarian in Deuteronomy than it is in Exodus. At least that's how most scholars, well, I should say most, at least many scholars understand these things, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, there's obviously so much more we could talk about with the Decalogue, and maybe we need to, given how it is sometimes held up by Christians as the timeless essence of what it means to obey God. But these laws, like all biblical laws, look the way they do because they have a contextual dimension. It cannot be avoided. The Christian context is more defined by the gospel than by the Decalogue, which doesn't mean the Decalogue can be tossed out, but it is certainly secondary. I hope I'm not going to be misunderstood when I put it that way. Anyway, speaking of the contextual dimension of laws, let's now move on and look at some high points of the Book of the Covenant, which is in Exodus 21.1 to 23.19, again, so-called because that's what it's called in Exodus 24.7. Now, sometimes these laws are said to be, they come right after the Decalogue, so they're said to be specific applications of the Decalogue, like fleshed out examples of what the Decalogue says rather quickly. But that doesn't really work, namely because not all of the Decalogue is reflected here. And some of the laws in the Book of the Covenant don't seem to echo anything specific in the Decalogue. I think that seeing the Book of the Covenant as an extension of the Decalogue might stem from the notion that the Decalogue is, again, the essence of obedience, the essence of what it means to know the heart of God or something like that. But the Book of the Covenant is more its own thing as far as I'm concerned. So what does the Book of the Covenant cover? Well, in in this sense, as I mentioned earlier, it is generally similar to the Decalogue in that it covers both religious matters, worship, and social responsibility. In fact, these two aspects alternate in the Book of the Covenant. Beginning already in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, which is sort of a bridge, right, like we discussed between the Decalogue and the Book of the Covenant, here God gives Moses commands about worship. They are to make no idols of silver or gold, and the altar for sacrifices is to be made of earth and not hewn stone, and with no steps, lest the nakedness of the priest might be exposed. Now, apparently you could catch a peek under his robe as he climbs the steps. That's maybe a little weird, but this and, and the altar construction could reflect some issue with Canaanite worship practices. 
And this is all about making sure the Israelites are distinct in their worship from their Canaanite neighbors. And then, moving on, in chapter 21, 1 to twenty-two seventeen, we come to laws about social responsibility. And here we see some famous laws like eye for an eye, which is not about retaliation, but making sure the punishment fits the crime. But this section also raises some well-known moral issues for readers of the law today and actually throughout history. For example, slaves are the property of the owner and therefore they don't benefit from the eye for an eye law. See, if a slave is injured, the owner isn't injured, but the owner receives some compensation. And an owner can beat the slave with a rod and if the slave dies immediately, the owner is punished. We're not told how, but he doesn't die. But, see, if the slave, listen to this, if the slave dies a couple of days later, not immediately, but a couple of days later, there is no punishment. That'll make you think. By the way, this law is a good example of the overlap we see between Israelite law and law codes of other nations. I mentioned earlier the Code of Hammurabi, the Babylonian king, where the treatment of slaves parallels nicely what we see in Exodus 21, 20 to 27. And the Babylonian law is certainly older. I don't think this is like plagiarism or anything, but both these slave laws reflect what was in the air at the time, so to speak. What was, in other words, generally understood about the status of slaves. It's really hard to discount the contextual nature of Israel's laws when you begin to see it. And for some people, theologically, it's a bit easier to think of these rather difficult laws as examples of ancient Near Eastern thinking, rather than as something that God commands, as if God thinks that some people are of lesser value than others. And that's a lot to wrap our heads around theologically, but um, yeah, there are challenges to looking at the context, and there are also some benefits to looking at the context. Anyway, another example of an off-putting law for us is in 22, 16 to 17. This is where the virgin daughter is treated as a father's property. See, if she is seduced by a man, here's what happens. If she is seduced by a man, this is a virgin daughter, she's not married. If she's seduced by a man, he must marry her and he must pay the father the bride price. But if for some reason the father refuses to give her to him, the guy still has to pay the bride price. See, on one level, this bride price helps support the virgin daughter, who's now basically damaged goods. She won't be able to marry, probably. And now she has some means of being provided for. However, note that the father gets paid regardless. That's still interesting. See, if you compare this law to the one right before it, where the owner receives restitution if one of his animals is borrowed and is injured or dies, right? Compare these two laws, we can move effortlessly from the law about cattle to a similar law about virgin daughters. Now, many English Bibles, no doubt trying to avoid that awkwardness, they insert a subheading between these two laws as if the Previous laws are about property, but now we're moving to a new category. But again, when read back to back, they are both casuistic laws, case laws, about damaged property. When you're able to and you have a minute, 
Take a look at your Bibles and see how your Bible handles this transition from Exodus twenty-two fifteen to 16. Do they insert there a subheading that says something like social laws at the beginning of verse 16? They may very well do that. And I guess in a way they sort of are, but that really misses the offense of this law, at least for modern ears, that the virgin daughter is essentially the property of the father. Anyway, these laws have presented challenges to readers for quite some time. Okay, now in the final section of the Book of the Covenant, this is 22.18 to 23.19, worship and social responsibility laws are woven together. So here we see a law prohibiting sacrifice to other gods, religious worship law, next to a law prohibiting oppressing resident aliens, who are basically non-Israelites who live peacefully among them. We also see laws about fairness and justice for everyone, followed by laws, except unless you're a slave, right? Remember that. But we see laws about fairness and justice for everyone, followed by laws governing the Sabbath and the sabbatical year. Like every seventh year, the land is to rest. You don't like plow it, let it just, you know, press reset. And you also have the annual feasts that are mentioned here uh, and, and other places in the Old Testament as well, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which later becomes the Passover, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, or also called the Feast of Weeks. This is the grain harvest, and this is the period of Pentecost in Greek. And also the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the as the Feast of Booths, um, Sukkot is the Hebrew name, and uh, also sometimes referred to as Tabernacles. Now, without opening up a huge can of worms, at least much, these feasts are possibly adapted from older Canaanite practices, and then later become identified with Exodus Passover, sort of like, you know, we probably know this, connecting Christmas to a pre-existing quote, pagan holiday, like the winter solstice or the German Yule. We're not innocent of this sort of thing. And as we saw with the two versions of the Decalogue before, some laws in the Book of the Covenant are not consistent with other law codes in the Pentateuch. For example, in Exodus 21, a male Hebrew slave can go free after seven years if he wishes, but not a female slave. She doesn't have that choice. In Deuteronomy 15, both Hebrew male and female slaves are given that option. And then in Leviticus 25, Hebrew slaves are not permitted at all, since the Exodus was about liberating Hebrews from slavery. Or, you know, the law we saw about building altars only of earth with no steps, that presumes that this altar can be put anywhere. In fact, it need not even be limited to one. But, in Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17, the altar is only located in the temple in Jerusalem, and it's not made of earth. In fact, already in Exodus 27, which we'll get to next time, the altar for the tabernacle, which is, you know, the prototype of the temple, the altar of the tabernacle is made of bronze. Now, again, we're looking at different traditions here that come together in this book 
by the hands of an editor, probably living during the Persian period, after the return from Babylonian exile. And, you know, speaking of traditions, and, and moving now to my last and brief, hopefully, point, careful readers have noted that it's very hard in this section to keep track of when Moses is actually going up and down the mountain to speak with God. In 24.1, God tells Moses to come up the mountain, but this time bringing Aaron, Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders up with him, but to keep them at a distance. By the way, again, just throwing this in for free, if you've been hanging with this series since the beginning, in episode four, we talked about the three-part division of the mountain, sort of reflecting the divisions of the tabernacle and the temple itself. And we're seeing that here, you know, these other people are coming along with Moses, but they have to keep a distance, but they're going up the mountain at least part of the way. All right. Anyway, this happens in 24.9. The only question here, though, is when did Moses ever come down? Hang with me here. If you begin reading in chapter 19, God is speaking with Moses, but it's not entirely clear where that speaking is happening. In fact, the Decalogue seems to have been spoken to Moses rather incredibly, while he was down off the mountain. Read the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20 in in succession. It seems like Moses went down, and then God spoke to him the ten words. A few verses later, in 20-21, Moses is said to, quote, draw near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, if that means to go up the mountain, that means they had been down all that time. In other words, again, the Decalogue was given on flat earth. Unless we insert into the story a descent in between, this is getting confusing. And then Moses goes up in 24.9. But according to the flow of the story, Moses is still up there. Anyway, you know, scholars have typically chalked this up to different traditions, again, sources, as they're often called, that were woven together by a later editor, And as is so typical of ancient editors, not really being all that concerned about avoiding problems like this, which keeps some of us up at night. Well, anyway, that's just another example that this example of going up and down the mountain, that's a rather drawn out example. And maybe I shouldn't even have raised it, but I just want you to know that it's there. Maybe if you read Exodus starting in 19 and going through 24, try to get a sense of where Moses is. And realizing that he comes down from the mountain in chapter 32 and 33, 34. That's where he smashes the tablets of the commandments. You know, he's clearly up there at that point, but at what point is he up? At what point is he down? And you can almost like try to make a chart of that, and you can see where the problems are. And it seems like these different traditions were woven together here, again, without any concern about, oh no, is this going to work? They didn't care. And maybe neither, okay, don't do it. I take it all back. Uh, Don't care. Don't worry about it. Unless you're really curious, then do it. Okay, listen, we're going to stop there. And as I said before, even if these podcasts are maybe a bit longer than we usually have them, even though I'm just trying to give an overview, we're really still scratching the surface of the depth and the complexities of this wonderful book of Exodus. All right, so now having looked at Israel's laws of worship and social responsibility, in the next episode, we're going to move to the section on the tabernacle. Israel's worship center, 
complete with a cafe and bowling alleys and oh wait no that's that's not that anyway different kind of worship center all right it is a long section and it might not be the most exciting but it raises interesting historical and theological issues and that's what we'll get into next time all right folks listen thanks again for listening and if this podcast is for you and i hope that it is spread the word to friends Oh, enemies, anybody, right? Uh, take a moment and rate us on iTunes and you know, maybe check out our website at pdens.com for my blog and, of course, for other episodes of the podcast, for books. Uh, we have some online courses there that you're welcome to. And uh, even some awesome can't-do-without total FOMO merch. I'm told merch is what the professionals say when they mean merchandise like the rest of us. All right, folks, that's it for this week, and see you next time. Thanks again.